In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. June 1st, 2017. President Donald Trump steps out onto the White House lawn and cuts to the chase. America is leaving the Paris Climate Accord effective immediately. This was also the moment that my boss, Matt, messaged our team on Slack and said, to paraphrase, we have to cover this. Now, to be completely transparent, I wasn't intimately acquainted with the climate change movement at the time. From what I read, I knew climate change was happening. I also knew that there was a pretty large rift in America's thought around climate change, namely whether or not it actually existed. I also knew that Leonardo DiCaprio was pretty vocal about it at the Oscars. Climate change is real. It is happening right now. It is the most urgent threat facing our entire species. But what I was about to dive into was much more than just a social issue, something political or something that's interesting to debate. I was about to understand climate change as something far more grave, the greatest test human beings have ever faced. We'll be exploring this today on Hyperlink Radio in part one of a two-part series on climate change. We've got a lot to talk about. Stay tuned. Hyperlink is hyperlink. 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 Welcome to Season 2 of Hyperlink Radio, Episode 1. I'm David Grabowski. Hyperlink Radio is a biannual series of podcast episodes that explores how we connect with each other, with technology, and with the world around us. We're produced by Winning Edits, which also publishes Hyperlink Magazine, and we're online at winningedits.com. You can get the latest episodes of Hyperlink Radio by subscribing via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or RSS. Check out hyperlinkradio.io to learn more. Again, that's hyperlinkradio.io. This is part one of our two-part series on climate change. Tune in at the end of the season for part two. Part one, skepticism versus science. Climate change quickly revealed itself to me as a crisis, and a quiet crisis at that because, let's face it, our day-to-day really isn't affected by climate change. We can get up in the morning, get in our car, and burn gasoline all day if we want to. We can eat steak for every meal. We can open our windows and run the AC at the same time. Besides a really high electric bill, the repercussions won't be obvious. And that's part of why climate change is such a challenge. It's apathy anonymous. None of us has to take direct responsibility for it, and we might not see how bad it really gets during our lifetime. But what about the lifetime after us? What about the third generation, the fourth, the seventh? The moment that President Trump withdrew from the Paris Accord was more than just an announcement, more than just a political decision, and definitely more than something to snark about on Twitter. 
it underlined a major reason for our lack of nationalized climate action, and that problem is political polarization on a national scale. We have catastrophes looming on our horizons, but we're failing currently as a country and as a people to save our species from the existential threat that poses. So many of us are scratching our heads as to why we're not doing more. Well, here's a big part of the answer. Divided, we fall. Back to the Paris Climate Agreement. So if you didn't know before, the Climate Agreement is basically a plan to combat climate change on a global level. It was signed by the leaders of 196 of the world's nations with the goal of reducing warming to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 2 degrees for you Celsius people. That's 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels, by the way. The goal is to hit that target by 2020, meaning that our emissions globally cannot continue to rise beyond 2020 if the agreement hopes to be effective. And two degrees is the bare minimum, by the way. Don't think of that as a healthy number. The agreement also stipulated 1.5 degrees Celsius as a kind of best-case scenario target. So island nations actually adopted the mantra 1.5 to stay alive. Why? Well, because 1.5 degrees Celsius is the point at which climate disaster would be at least slightly mitigated. And since a very significant rise in sea level is probably going to be a consequence of warming, well, you can see why an island nation would be cheering for 1.5, if not less. 2 degrees Celsius is not the point at which the world is saved. It's the notch right before the tipping point, which is what climate scientists refer to as the point at which we won't be able to pump the brakes anymore. Think of a bus careening downhill. The curve from 1.5 degrees to 2 degrees could mean the extinction of the world's coral reefs, and it would double the intensity of crop failures, water shortages, and heat waves. The other goal, meet a goal of net zero emissions, so completely balance out the emissions that we do create by mid-century, 2050-ish. Sounds reasonable, right? That's the gist of the climate deal that America signed under Obama in 2016. Today's a historic day in the fight to protect our planet for future generations. Ten months ago in Paris, I said before the world... So why, right? Why would President Trump pull us out of the agreement? What's so bad about it? Well, Trump cited the economy and the jobs that would be lost. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris, he quipped which was a little ironic since Pittsburgh most certainly did not vote for Trump in 2016. I went to college in Pittsburgh. The environment there is still reeling from the effects of decades of coal mining. Its industry turned towards natural gas a long time ago. I mean, the sun used to literally blot the sun out in Pittsburgh. I digress. Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the majority leader, applauded the president in his administration for, quote, dealing yet another significant blow to the Obama administration's assault on domestic energy production and jobs. I mean, it's a non-binding agreement. Like, if you just wanted to just not follow through with our pledge to cut emissions but stay with stay in the Paris framework, like, he could have just done that, and there mm-hmm. would have been no penalties for it and no repercussions. But to withdraw from it is just kind of a it's just kind of a middle finger to the entire world, to future generations, to third world countries. It's just it's just basically saying we in America don't care about climate change. The rest of the world, you're on your own. That's Dana Nucitelli, by the way. He's an environmental scientist and a blogger for The Guardian. We'll hear more from him later. The Paris withdrawal kind of boils down to the economy, right? At least in the eyes of the Trump administration. It's about business. It's about the fact that business can't go on as usual if we hope to prevent climate crisis. 
Trump's politics don't like that. They're all about America first. But changes to American business are necessary, and we're going to need to change everything if we hope to win this battle. Ultimately, the changes we make in the next decade are some of the most important shifts for this century. Without them, there may be no economy, because, well, there won't be any human beings to be a part of it. A study at the University of Washington says there's a 90% likelihood that temperatures will rise between 2 and 4.9 degrees Celsius by 2100. That's disastrous, by the way. That's well over the tipping point. We can expect to lose our coral reefs. We can expect to see island nations threatened and to lose parts of the coast of America. And we'll see weather events that will make Hurricane Harvey look like a cute puppy. You might have thought that the backlash against the Paris withdrawal would have been loud. People chanting at the White House gates, everyone up in arms. You'd be wrong. Although the Paris withdrawal got some lashback, it was mostly on the internet. Apple and a couple other corporations made some statements. Mayors from 364 cities and representing 66 million Americans signed a statement on climatemayors.org and promised to uphold the accord anyway. The We Are Still In movement did the same thing. That's a group of businesses representing $6.2 trillion of the U.S. economy. They were all basically saying the same thing. We don't care that Trump pulled us out of Paris. We're going to uphold the accord anyway. This was uplifting for a lot of people. But hang on. So there's 323 million Americans. So climate mayors represents 20% of the country's population. The U.S. economy is worth $18.46 trillion. So we are still in is only 33% of that. Here are some more hard facts. According to a 2017 study by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, 74% of voters across party lines think the president, corporations, and industry should do more. 71% think global warming is happening, more than half think global warming is anthropogenic, which means human-caused, and only 3 in 10 registered voters have actually participated in any kind of collective action about this. Only 1 in 8 has actually contacted an elected official, and only 3 in 8 liberal Democrats, which unsurprisingly is the group most concerned about the crisis, have done that. So when the president pulls an entire nation out of an international agreement, it matters. International policy matters. And I know this is harsh, but the way I see it, this isn't going to be solved by pledges and promises. Our chief of state isn't addressing climate change directly, and his opponents in the political and financial worlds are just not going to be able to tackle climate change on their own. It's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to take more than policy, more than statements. It's going to take all of us. It's worth backtracking for a moment to talk about how this whole climate change thing started. You might think that the global warming movement is more of a recent, trendy topic, that it started with that Al Gore film, An Inconvenient Truth. But actually, this story starts much earlier. So let's go back to Dana for a bit. Um, I wanted to go back to um, when, when you became aware of the problem of global warming and, and, you know, 2006 rolls around and An Inconvenient Truth comes out and suddenly we have this this public awareness that we didn't have before but what what was kind of going on in the background but before then because i imagine i i think if i if i did my research right the 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 issue of global warming was first identified i think in the 70s or the 80s um 
and and had been discussed, but it certainly wasn't such a hot button issue until you know right around when that film came out. Why why was that? Yeah, I mean, you can even go back much further than that. Like the very first uh, scientific, the main scientific discoveries about the greenhouse effect and the potential for humans to impact the climate that way were made mm-hmm. in like the mid to late 1800s. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but, you know, then we kind of, at that time, we didn't realize obviously how much, you know, fossil fuels would be burning in the, mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And so basically it was, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s that we started really burning a lot of fossil fuels and that's kind of when it started to get on climate scientists radars that hey we're putting a lot of carbon into the atmosphere you know what is what kind of impact is that going to have on the climate mm-hmm. and so then about the 1970s is when climate model modeling started to become um a more uh a, a subject that a lot more climate scientists started to use they started to sort of build rudimentary climate models to see what effect all that putting all that carbon in the atmosphere would have on the climate. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously from 1970s to 80s to 90s, climate models started to become more developed and um, and represent the climate more accurately. Those mm-hmm. very, climate models were very rudimentary. And so basically as they started to learn more, they started to see, hey, wait a minute, this is going to have a significant effect on the climate if we keep putting this level of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, and so like in the... In 1988, uh, climate scientists from NASA, James Hansen, first went to Congress and, and testified and he's, you know, about, you know, the threat, the potential threat that uh, climate change was having on, or greenhouse gases were having on climate change. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just that the science started to develop at that point to a level where climate scientists started to realize that the, the level of the impact that we were going to have on the climate if we kept on our on our on our path on that at that time. Got it. Got it. That's that's a lengthy history, and uh, yeah, so it actually, seems like the science kind of caught up, maybe just, maybe in time. <laughs> yeah, or just and at the right time. Plug um, the history. I covered that in in the book I wrote, Climatology versus Pseudoscience. It's like the sort of the structure of my book is it's a chronolo- a chronology of uh, basically the key findings in climate science, and then and mm-hmm. I've also got other stuff about climate myths and climate models and, and policy and stuff like that, but kind of the main structure is a chronology where I go through the history of key climate science findings. That's that's fascinating, because I, I think there's, most of what I've, I've come across is, is you know, kind of current events and what we can do and, and the future, but but as far as actually looking back at the history of it, that's that's something I actually admittedly haven't thought much about, so... Yeah, it's a really interesting subject. Um, good, good plug, and we'll definitely link to that also in in the uh, show notes for the the podcast episode. Sure. It's worth noting here that 1988 was also when what I call climate change's fraternal twin was born: skepticism. At the congressional hearing, a New Mexico senator by the name of Pete Domenici arrived late, but he made his voice heard. He said, it seems that we as a people, and probably people all over the world, are very skeptical to move in areas such as this until we have either a disaster or absolute concrete proof. So that's pretty much the moment the divide started, from the word go. When I started researching my article, my initial question was, if our very existence is threatened, why aren't we more concerned? The answer seemed to be pretty obvious. Skepticism. Americans are generally not experiencing climate change daily. And so we're either skeptical or nonplussed. But as I started looking at the supporting evidence for climate change, I really started scratching my head as to how this could even be a debate anymore. 
If climate change isn't real, how is it possible that the top six warmest years on record are all within this decade? How is it possible to refute that we, meaning human beings, have had something to do with this? So 2017 is the the hottest year on record so far, um, as I think you outlined in your most recently published article, um, and that follows 2016 in the hierarchy of hot years. What what is accounting for this, and and why is it showing up so so kind of vehemently uh, now? Yeah, I mean this has been really interesting because 2016. I mean 2016 shattered the previous record, which was set in 2015, which shattered the previous record, which was set in 2014. But um, 2015 and 2016, they're both influenced by El Nino events. And when we have an El Nino, it sort of brings hot water from the oceans up to the surface. And when we're talking about record temperatures, we're talking about record temperatures at the surface. Mm-hmm. And so basically, we tend to get the hottest years when there's a big El Nino event. So previously, 1998 had set the, like, you know, at the time, 1998, it the previous record because there was a big monster El Nino event in 1998. And so it wasn't really surprising that 2016 was this super hot year because there was a really big El Nino. But that's Mm -hmm. since faded away, and temperatures have sort of gone down a little bit, but we're still at this point, despite not having an El Nino, we're still at the second hottest year halfway through 2017. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's been a little bit surprising, but, I mean, it's just a sign that, you know, it's basically saying, hey, this heat is here to stay because of human-caused global warming because, you know, we're not having an El Nino, Solar activity is low right now, so really the only explanation for why temperatures are staying high is because of this long-term human-caused global warming trend. Just a quick aside, this interview was conducted in the summer of 2017. It's 2018 now, and as it turns out, according to NOAA, 2017 was the third hottest year on record. Second, according to NASA, but still, here's Dana again. Got it. What what are the deniers saying about, about that kind of factuality? Um... Well, I think they, when we're in the midst of hot temperatures, they tend to not like to talk about the current temperatures. But, I mean, there are certainly often arguments that we, the temperature record is unreliable for one reason or another. They basically, when the temperatures are hot, they say we can't trust the temperatures. When the temperatures are at lower levels, then suddenly the temperature record is reliable once again. They can trust it once again when the temperatures aren't quite so high. Mm-hmm. Once the temperatures are high, then suddenly it's because the temperature record is unreliable or climate scientists are somehow fudging the data to make the temperature look hotter than it is. Or there's always some kind of myth that they can come up with to dispute data that they don't like. Got it. Got it. So they're kind of picking and choosing how they want to handle it depending on which makes their cause look better. <laughs> exactly. That is how climate denial operates. That's yeah. rough. So this is a good segue. Despite the data on this year's record heat and, and these facts, a great deal of your publications seem to focus not necessarily on, on what we can do about global warming, but actually just convincing people that you know anthropogenic global warming exists, period, yeah. and that there is a scientific consensus behind the, the fact of it. You know, can, you, can you tell me about the 97% consensus um, you know, I, I actually haven't really found out where that percentage comes from, and you know, how is it possible for such a strong consensus to to be deb- debated, you know, at all? Sure. So there's a, a bit of a history on climate science consensus research. Uh, the first paper was done in 2004 by Naomi Oreskes, uh, who was at Harvard at the time. Or, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, she's at Harvard now. She was at San Diego at the time. And so basically, she wanted. She decided that at that point there were a lot of arguments about 
what climate scientists thought as a whole about climate, about global warming and the causes. So mm -hmm. basically she set out, she looked at 928 peer-reviewed scientific papers. She looked at the abstracts, which is the, actually I believe she looked at the entire paper. Um, I can't recall. But anyway, she looked at 928 peer-reviewed papers to see what they said about the causes of global warming. And basically in her sample, she found zero that disputed that humans were causing global warming. And so that was sort of the first consensus study. It's basically of the papers taking a position on global warming, 100% said humans are responsible. And then fast forward about five years later, there was another paper by some scientists who um, they surveyed basically a subset of Earth scientists. And in that subset of Earth scientists, there was a further subset of, of scientists who were actually doing climate research, so climate scientists. So uh, among the climate scientist segment of their survey, in that 90, they asked the question, are humans a significant contributor to global warming? And 97% of those said yes. So that was the first, that was kind of the birth of the 97% statistic. Um, mm -hmm. At the moment, at that time, we didn't know it was going to be sort of a, a big uh, popular number. But then a couple of years later, there was another study where these, this group of scientists looked at public statements made by climate researchers doing climate science research and basically they found that of the most prolific climate science researchers, uh, science researchers who had published, I think it was more than 20 peer-reviewed climate science papers, uh, among those, again, 97% agreed with the consensus of human-caused global warming. So that was the second 97%. And then a couple years later, uh, there was still this myth. There's this really popular myth that basically people who wanted to not take action on climate change would say there is no consensus or there's a growing number of scientists who reject human-caused global warming. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you know, skeptical science had been going for a few years, and we had this big international team of contributors, and we said, okay, there's this growing myth. It's been almost a decade since Naomi Rescues did her first study. So we have this big team of people. Why don't we do an even bigger study where we look at this large sample of peer-reviewed papers and use our team to categorize them based on what they say about what's causing global warming? And so we started on this. We call it the Consensus Project to see what the updated consensus was. And we looked at 20 years of peer-reviewed climate science papers, and we ended up with a sample of about 12,000 of these papers. And we looked at the abstract, which is at the beginning of each scientific paper, there's mm -hmm. like paragraph summary of what the paper says and so we looked at the abstract of these 12,000 papers and categorized them based on what they said about the causes of global warming if anything and ultimately we found that of the abstracts that said something about what's causing global warming 97% said humans were responsible for most global warming uh, since 1950 a majority of the global warming since 1950 and so that was sort of the third 97% and we also because it was such as it was like it's kind of a novel thing because it was this huge sample of 12,000 papers and it was done by like a team of citizen scientists and so mm -hmm. it was kind of a newsy thing and so we got a lot of press coverage for it and so that became like a widespread at that point a lot of people heard about the 97% and it got mentioned by like a bunch of different sort of high profile people mentioned it and it started to become a little bit more widely known about this 97% consensus on human-caused global warming. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's been attacked since then, and we published a few more papers responding to the attacks since then, but that's kind of the, the basic history about it anyway. Wow. So it's not the 97%, it's the 97%, <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah, it's uh, several wow. Yeah. So, so what's the argument to, to this? You know, I, I see a lot of you know amongst the the Google alerts that I get, there's always one or two in there that 
say, a range of, of things from, you know, global warming alarmists and the 97% myth to a most recent one from, I think it was Breitbart, that actually said that global warming is a as a something that was suggested by the nazi regime oh, uh, pr- pretty 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 uh pretty harsh so well, you know what how is there how is there a debate about this and what are they kind of resting on in debating the 97 percent um so there are a couple of different approaches they take one is just to dispute the 97 percent consensus itself mm-hmm. and so they'll maybe pick one of those 97 percent consensus studies and try to find some kind of flaw in it that they can pick at so like that first thing they'll say the sample size of that subset of scientists doing climate science research they'll say that subset was too small so it's it's not an accurate representation of the climate science literature or they'll look at our paper and they'll say well this was done by these biased climate alarmists and so their result is probably biased too mm-hmm. um, one way we respond to that is that i forgot to mention that a second phase of our study was that we then sent emails out to the climate scientists who had published the research that we looked at, and we asked them to categorize their own uh, research about what it said about the cause of global warming. And we got, I believe it was about 8,000 responses. And in their responses, again, we, we got the exact, almost the exact same 97% consensus number. So that's pretty hard to refute when people attack our research. They always attack our our volunteer science, citizen scientists' ratings, and they never—they always seem to forget that there's that second component where we ask the climate science researchers themselves what mm-hmm. they said. But anyway, there's always a, a efforts to attack the 97% itself, um, or they'll take a different tack and they'll say, "Okay, sure, there's a 97% consensus because all these researchers are biased. They're trying to get grant money. There's all these conspiracy <laughs> theories. They're all a bunch of sheep." Mm-hmm. So they're a different there's always different ways people are very good at finding ways to believe what they want to believe and so they'll just take a different tack and they'll you know whatever that whatever works for them they'll try to find some sort of argument that they can use to convince themselves that either the climate the consensus doesn't exist or the consensus is wrong because all the scientists are biased or they're frauds or whatever whatever mm-hmm. they might believe. when we can't be experts in every subject, and so we tend to defer to the experts. And the experts on climate science are obviously climate scientists. And so if mm-hmm. people realize that the climate scientists, 97% of them agree on this, then people will defer to the experts and they'll say, okay, well then there's no reason for me not to believe it too. And so, I mean, there was like a, a, in about the late 90s, there was this really infamous memo by Republican strategist Frank Luntz that eventually got leaked that basically he said – um, I can't remember the exact wording, but to paraphrase that, if people if people realize that there is a scientific consensus on this issue, then they will uh, begin to accept it. So it was his, his wording was very similar to the tobacco industry's "doubt is our product." It was basically, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't quite so nefarious, but it was basically like we mean, we need to make sure people don't uh, accept or don't think that there is a scientific consensus on this issue, and that was way back in around 2000 so they've been pushing this no consensus myth for a long long time the quote to be accurate is from a leaked 2002 memo to george w bush it read the scientific debate is closing against us but not yet closed there is still a window of opportunity to challenge the science voters believe that there is no consensus about global warming within the scientific community should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled their views about global warming will change accordingly. 
Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate and defer to scientists and other experts in the field. Luntz's strategy still seems to be the default setting for a lot of Republican politics. Even as President Trump made his Paris announcement, a report was being written. Thirteen federal agencies were involved, and that includes NASA and the NOAA. This was drafted as part of the Congress-mandated National Climate Assessment. The report stated that anthropogenic warming is extremely likely, that there are no convincing alternative explanations, and that the magnitude of that change beyond the next few decades is going to depend, primarily, on the amount of greenhouse gases emitted globally. Right after that, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, just kind of scoffed. During a radio interview, he said that, frankly, this report ought to be subjected to peer-reviewed, objective-reviewed methodology and evaluation, which was kind of silly, since a 14-person committee at the National Academies had already reviewed it. And considering Scott Pruitt's ties with the Koch brothers, I guess his response wasn't all that surprising. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. scary that's really yeah. scary well why yeah. so I, I get in the tobacco industry obviously they don't want people to realize what they're doing to themselves by smoking their products because they mm -hmm. need to sell more product what's the uh the kind of underlying goal for you know maybe some 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 of our, our larger leaders to you know why why don't they want the public to to come to an agreement on things well, I mean, the underlying issue is is basically fossil fuel industry uh, political donations. I mean, mm. obviously, it's in the fossil fuel industry's best interest for people that keep burning lots of fossil fuels. Right. And I mean, there's been a lot of uh, great investigative journalism into Exxon Mobil's their internal climate science research and and their scientists having concluded in I believe it was the 1980s that burning lots of fossil fuels is going to create a lot of climate change and a lot of problems. They've, you know, uh, ExxonMobil knew this in the 1980s. And yet we still, and then they, after that, they very quickly started to fund a very expensive campaign of misinformation about the, the climate science research. Um, and then, so the question is, why do politicians go along with this? Well, because politicians get lots of, lots of money from fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil and the Koch brothers and, these, these organizations that have huge profits and so they have lots of money that they can give in the form of campaign donations to politicians who they think will advance their interests. And their interests are for people to support continuing to burn lots of fossil fuels. And so if there is a politician who supports that same goal, they'll get a lot of funding from these fossil fuel industry groups. And, and you know, we unfortunately we know that, you know, campaign donations are a very critical part of being elected in our political system. Oof. Yeah. It's true that the fossil fuel industry funds a lot of the Republican Party. 180 members of Congress currently deny climate change. They've collectively received nearly $100 million from the coal, oil, and gas industries. Yeah, you know, politics aside, and we'll circle back to this. But in America, you know, just just over from one study I read, just over fifty percent of the public believe in anthropogenic global warming. Believe that that's the reality, and of that fifty percent, only ninety percent perceive it as as a uh, a real threat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or I'm, I'm sorry, ninety percent don't perceive it as a real threat. Feel feel that it's it's not actually very threatening. So most people think that this isn't something they really need to be concerned about, you know, what is it going to take to raise the public consensus on climate change 
beyond that 50% mark? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, so yeah, there was just a, I believe it was a Yale, they do a periodic survey of uh, public opinion in America, and I think mm-hmm. the latest had 57% of Americans uh, understand that humans are the main cause of global warming, or humans mm-hmm. are causing global warming. Right. And then, you know, I think they break it down across a political spectrum, and basically the more liberal you are, the more likely you are to answer that correctly, and the more conservative you are, the less likely you are to answer that correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, like so many issues, this has become, you know, a politically polarized issue, and we have this uh, problem of increased, we call it tribalism in America, where, you know, if you're a conservative, then you're on the Republican tribe, and you want to believe what your tribe believes, and at least at the moment, the Republican tribal position is that climate change is not happening, or at least it's not a problem that we have to worry about. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how to solve that problem is it's that's kind of a million dollar question. How do you depolarize America? Because we've just become increasingly polarized on, I mean, not just climate change, but almost every issue, but climate change has been one of the casualties of that. So we have this duality, this push and pull at the top. Scientists are saying it's here, let's do something, and our top politicians are kind of dismissing it, if they're Republican, or they're getting heated if they're Democrat. So it's all at the top, right? It's all big oil's fault. It's our corrupt political system. It's out of our hands. At least statistically, that's kind of our attitude. And those statistics I mentioned earlier, you know, how less than half of us are actually doing anything about this. Actually, only 41% of Americans currently think that climate change is affecting the world. We're one of the least concerned nations on Earth when it comes to climate change, despite having the highest output of CO2 per capita than any other country in the world. So what do we do? What can the average, everyday American do about this disaster that's coming our way? How do we even manage to wrap our heads around it when, again, the effects of climate change aren't really felt on a day-to-day basis? The climate change dilemma started to seem more and more like a mind game to me. It wasn't that the information wasn't available. People were just looking the other way. They were denying it like this was a chicken little scenario. They were split based on partisanship, and we were all standing still as a result. How much longer could this go on? 2017 had seen some pretty significant weather events, a lot of them linked to climate change. Would the apathy catch up with us eventually? Well, around the time I started writing my article, a piece came out in The New Yorker. It's actually the most read piece in that publication's history, and it's called The Uninhabitable Earth. A lot of people dismissed it, saying it was extinction porn. That was a new term for me. Others said it was pretty much on the money. The article started off with a simple sentence. It is, I promise, worse than you think. A paragraph later, the article's author, Wallace Wells said that absent a significant adjustment to how billions of humans conduct their lives, parts of the Earth will likely become close to uninhabitable, and other parts horrifically inhospitable, as soon as the end of this century. There's this group. They're called ClimateActionTracker.org, and they're an independent scientific analysis produced by three research organizations. They've been tracking climate action since 2009. They rank countries based on their efforts to reduce emissions, and currently, the U.S. is ranked as critically insufficient. That's when it hit me. 
the climate change debacle was not a political one. We were critically insufficient because of us, because of Apathy Anonymous, because we were forgetting that our elected officials were just that, elected officials. We put them there. If our action as a country was critically insufficient, that wasn't the fault of our officials. It was ours. Our lack of voice, action, protest was what was critically insufficient. I knew that polarization existed on a political level, but with so much overwhelming evidence, why did it still exist on a personal one? How do we depolarize? How do we mobilize? It is not that we do not have enough people in this country to do the job. The problem is to have the right number of the right people in the right places at the right time. We're going to dive deep into these questions in part two, where I'll be interviewing Dan Kahan. He's the Elizabeth K. Dollard Professor of Law and Professor of Psychology at Yale Law School and head of the Cultural Cognition Project. He's been investigating public perception of climate change, and his research will completely change how you think about climate change polarization. I'm also talking to Valerie Bain, who's one of the group leaders of the Sacramento chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. She'll be talking about what we can do on a day-to-day level to make a difference, and some of the efforts of Citizens Climate Lobby to depolarize the conversation around climate change. So on this season of Hyperlink Radio, we're changing up our end segment. We'll be doing a content of the week recommendation at the end of each episode, and this week, it's a podcast. It's called A Very Fatal Murder, and it's created by Onion Public Radio, or OPR. Special thanks to Ray Sylvester, who's another team member here, for sending it my way. If you didn't know already, The Onion is a satirical news site, so A Very Fatal Murder is a spoof on the likes of Serial, Making a Murderer, you know, the whole true crime genre. And it nails it on the head. A Very Fatal Murder just ruthlessly mocks true crime podcasts, even prods them in a more serious way that makes some implications about, well, exploitation, for example. It's got seven episodes, they're around 10 minutes an episode, just highly recommended. If I could play a clip, I would, but I'm a little worried about copyright infringement, so we'll have to link to it in the show notes. It's free, so check it out. Part two of our special on climate change will release toward the end of this season of Hyperlink Radio, but we've got a ton of great stuff coming your way in the meantime. Next week, we're talking about brands that give back, companies with mission-driven business models. Our own Known Wells is sitting down with the CEO of One World Play Project. That's a company that's promoting social nutrition worldwide. Find out what that is in the next episode. To find out more about Hyperlink Radio, you can visit hyperlinkradio.io. You can find show notes, bonus content, links, and other episodes from Season 1 and 2. Stay connected to Hyperlink Radio and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or however you like to listen to podcasts. And one more time, that's Hyperlink Radio. Thanks again, and stay connected.